Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, the religious landscape in the United States uh, continues to change. You could say we live in a post-Christian, biblically illiterate society, and so that's why I think it is very important for Christians to learn to be able to express the reasons they, they believe what they believe. Why do we believe in God? Why do we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why do we put our faith in, in Jesus? Um, to be able to share that faith in a winsome way with the world, I think, is a valuable skill. So I do want to encourage you guys to come out for the apologetics course starting on April 4th from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. We'll be here every Tuesday and cover a number of topics related to defending our faith. So I encourage you to sign up. Um, I'd love to see you there. So we're going to continue this morning in the theme of idolatry. Jason has led us uh, through a series over the last few weeks dealing with the idols of the heart. And so we've, we've examined that uh, in, in a broad manner, but also we've delved into a few passages and, and looked at specific examples of idolatry in Scripture. And so I want to do that this morning. I want to take you to an example of the idol of control, the idol of, of security, the idol of comfort that I think we all probably struggle with to some extent. And so we're going to go to Genesis chapter 19 this morning. And Genesis 19 follows the story of a, a character known simply as Lot's wife, she shows up in a couple places in Scripture, Genesis 19. She's also referenced in Luke 17. But the context here is the flight from Sodom. So if you recall this story in the Old Testament, God is about to rain down judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he, in his mercy, redeems Lot and his family out of that judgment. He calls Lot, his wife, and his two daughters to flee for their lives, to flee to the mountains. And during this event, Lot's wife turns and looks back at the city of Sodom. Her heart turns back toward what she left behind. And because of this, she's swept away in the judgment. And the text tells us that she is turned into a pillar of salt. Now, that may seem a bit strange to our ears. We worship a God that transforms people into pillars of salt as judgment. It seems a bit odd. But I want you to understand that this is not just some fairy tale about an angry wizard who's taking out vengeance on somebody by transforming them into a toad, okay? This is fundamentally a story about the consequences of, of idolatry. Now, if you go back in, in history and you look at mythologies of the world or you look at fairy tales of the world, we have a lot of stories of metamorphosis where people are transformed into something unnatural. Uh, you, you could think of in Greek mythology the story of Medusa, a beautiful young woman who offended the goddess Athena and was subsequently turned into a snake-haired horror, a monster. Or uh, uh, the nymph uh, Daphne, for example, who uh, somehow offended Apollo. And as she's fleeing from Apollo, she calls out to the other gods for, for help. And they help her by changing her into a laurel tree, which doesn't seem like a great way to help a person. But that's the way the story goes. Or you think of our fairy tales. You know, a lot of fairy tales that are common in, in European history or North African or Middle Eastern uh, history... 
princes or, or princesses being turned into frogs. Or Beauty and the Beast is another example, where this handsome young prince offends an old crone who turns out to be uh, an enchantress of some sort, and, and, and she transforms him into a hideous beast. And such was the nature of, of this nefarious curse that only the love of a beautiful young book nerd named Belle could transform him back into his former self. So we might suppose that this transformation of Lot's wife into a salt gargoyle in Genesis 19 is just another myth, another story that we see in, in the cultures around us. But I just want to emphasize briefly this morning that the difference between mythologies and scriptural accounts is that mythologies are not necessarily rooted in historical events. They're designed to teach lessons maybe in virtue or in moral conduct. They're, they're there to explain cultural and, and, and natural phenomena and things of that nature. But scripture, on the other hand, is truly rooted in history, in God's interaction with human beings in time and space. And so the story of Lot's wife should not be read as a mere myth, but as theological and anthropological history. I take this story at face value, and I'd, I'd encourage you to do the same. So let's read it, let's dig in, and see what this passage of Scripture teaches us about the nature of idolatry, the idol of security, the idol of comfort. So we'll go to Genesis 19, and we'll start at verse 15. And again, the context here is Lot and his family fleeing the destruction of Sodom. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather in your presence this morning. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to worship you through song, through prayer, and through the study of your word. 
Holy Spirit, would you guide us, guide our reflection this morning, open our eyes, help us to understand the meaning of this passage. Lord, help us to walk in obedience to you. Most importantly, Lord, show us Jesus this morning. Help us to be drawn to our Lord and Savior through our study. In Jesus' name, amen. So to understand uh, this story, I need to back up just a little bit and explain some of the, the history leading up to this event. So if we go back a few chapters in Genesis, we find that God has called Abraham out of uh, the city of Ur and, and promised him a new life. Uh, he's promised him this, this land known as, well, the, the promised land. He's promised him an inheritance. And so Lot takes his wife, Sarah, and his nephew, Lot, and they, uh, sorry, Abraham takes his wife, Sarah, and his, his nephew, Lot, and they, they go to this, this new, new place. Um, during that time, Lot and Abraham have a, a kind of a, a separation where Lot goes on to settle in the, the cities of the plains, so Sodom, Gomorrah, and several other villages. Abraham, on the other hand, stays up in the hill country. And so during this time, Lot becomes a citizen of Sodom. Now, in the text, if you back up a little bit and read in, in verse, uh, or chapter 19, it talks about how Lot is sitting at the gate or the entrance of the city of Sodom where he meets these angels who come to visit. So this suggests that he had a prominent position, most likely, in, in the city of Sodom. He'd become an elder of that city. He'd become uh, a, a person of influence in the city of Sodom. So Lot has settled there, he's taken a wife, and he has at least two daughters that are mentioned in, in the passage, okay? Now, in one of the previous chapters, several angels appear to Abraham. If you recall that story, um, the purpose of that visit was for God to tell Abraham that he would have an heir, that in his old age, a son would be born to him. But a second thing happens in that, that conversation as well. The angels basically explain to Abraham that they're going to head down to Sodom and Gomorrah and investigate the outcry that has come to the Lord because of the sin of that place. And so Abraham enters into this, this kind of debate with the Lord. Well, if, if 50 righteous people are found in Sodom, will you still destroy the city? To which the Lord responds, no, if I find 50 righteous people there, I will not destroy Sodom. And then Abraham continues, well, what if 45 righteous people are found? Will you still destroy the city? And the Lord says, no, 45 are found there. I will not destroy it. And on the conversation goes down to 10. If I may be so bold, if 10 righteous people are found in Sodom, will you still destroy the city? And the Lord responds, no, if I find 10 righteous people there, I will not destroy Sodom. And so off the two angels go to investigate the evil, the sin of the residents of Sodom, and that's kind of where we pick up the story today. So Lot meets these two angels and invites them in. He shows them hospitality so that they don't have to stay in the city square. And during the night, as he's entertaining these two angels, the men of Sodom surround the house, young and old, with the intent of beating down the door and, and raping the two angels. It's, it's a rather disturbing story. Now Lot, being the good father he was, decided to toss his two virgin daughters out to the mob rather than the angels. Luckily, the angels intervene. By God's grace, they intervene, and they strike the men of, of Sodom with blindness at this point. And this is where 
we pick it up because the angels have now urged Lot and his family to flee the destruction. God is going to rain down fire, rain down judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot and his family are to flee. But Lot hesitates. And so we read in the passage that, that the angels literally have to seize Lot and his wife and his daughters by the hands and drag them out of the city and urge them to continue on to the mountains, to flee for their lives. And as they're fleeing, God unleashes hell from heaven and rains down fire and judgment on the cities of the plains. And at this moment, Lot's wife, who's lingering behind, turns and looks back, and she's swept away by the judgment, turned into a pillar of salt. Now, Lot's wife, or what remained of her, was left to stand guard over a desolate place that many scholars believe today is the, the region around the Dead Sea in Israel, where very little survives, very little grows. In fact, the text says really nothing of whether her corpse was simply coated with salt or whether she was transformed into salt on a molecular level, and I don't really think that that's the point. The point is that her carcass, her salty remains, serve as a reminder of her reluctance to obey God, to flee for her life. And I'd suggest that salt, a substance that preserves, not only preserved the body of Lot's wife, it also immortalized her as an example of, of disobedience. Her heart was fixed on what lay behind rather than on what lay ahead, rather than on God and his salvation. Now we read in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, if then you have been raised with Christ, that is if you have put your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ, you've confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you have entered into a relationship of discipleship, if you have been raised with Christ, seek then the things that are above. Seek the things where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. I think this verse really helps illustrate what's going on here in Genesis 19. Lot's wife had fixed her heart on the idols she'd left behind, the comfort and the security of the life she'd left behind. Now, does this sound like anyone you know? I think we probably all fit in there a little bit to some degree. I think as we ponder this tragic story, we'll find that we all have a little bit in common with this unnamed woman. Now look at the text, what we read again for a moment. I want you to notice that Lot's wife is never named in this passage. Do you notice that? She's simply known as Lot's wife. And I think this is actually a first clue to the nature of her sin. I would suggest that her namelessness here is actually intentional in the passage. It's a slight to her for her lack of faith, her lack of righteousness. Because in this narrative, we have Abraham really contrasted with, with Lot. Abraham, who was righteous. Abraham, who was called by God. Abraham, whose wife Sarah gave birth in her old age, birthed a nation. You have Sarah on the one hand and then Lot's wife on the other hand a person who's simply judged in the passage. It's kind of like in the movies where you have your main characters and they're given a name in the movie, you know, and the sidekick and some of the other people are given a name, but then you have those kind of extras in the background. 
And when you're watching the credits roll, if you've ever done this, you'll notice that those main characters, you have their name and then the actor next to them. And, and as it's rolling, you get down through the list, and then you'll come to those extras. Guy in the background, number one. Guy in the background, number two. Guy leaning against post in the background. That, that, that sort of thing, right? So they show up in the credits as just a background character. And I kind of think that's the idea here in, in Genesis 19. Woman in the background, number one, is fleeing for her life when she disobeys God and is judged. And here's where idolatry really enters the picture. So the Hebrew word tabet is translated to look in verse 26. To look. She looked back. Now, one might wonder if this was a simple backward glance over the shoulder. Perhaps it was curiosity that led her to sneak a peek at whatever form of judgment God was raining down on Sodom. After all, who hasn't slowed down along the auto route to sneak a peek at an accident as you drive by, right? Out of curiosity, just what's going on over there? You kind of wonder if that's what's going on. So the question is, was the sin of, of, of Lot's wife just careless voyeurism? Or was it something more profound? Now understand that disobeying God by looking back is reason enough for God to judge. It's reason enough for God to punish. But I want to suggest that there's a little something more going on here in the passage. See, I don't think woman in the background, number one, was merely guilty of rubbernecking. To simply look doesn't fully capture the nuance of the term Tabet in Hebrew. There's, there's more going on here. So if you look at this word elsewhere, if you did a word study or looked at where this term is used elsewhere in Scripture, it seems to have connotations of beholding something, watching something intently, considering, even with, with pleasure, with delight, to gaze on something. So when you merely look, only your eyes are involved. But when you tabet, this involves the heart. There's almost a sense of lust here. It makes me think of Jesus, Jesus' teaching on lust in the Sermon on the Mount. If you go to Matthew 5 through, through 7, and Jesus is expounding the law. He's explaining to his disciples the nature of, of the law. And he talks about lust. You've heard it said... Do not commit adultery, but I tell you that he who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the question is, did, did I simply notice that woman? Or did I pause to savor her beauty? Did I meditate on her form? Did I transfix my heart on what she might become to me were circumstances different? And that's the question. And so here in Genesis 19, this Hebrew word, tabet, or nebet in its, its root form, hints at more of this kind of careful longing or consideration of something. The text implies that woman in the background, number one, Lot's wife, made an intentional effort to look. She paused to take in what was going on behind her. This is, I think, a more robust understanding of the situation. I think it meshes quite well with Jesus' words in Luke chapter 17, verse 32. For example, Jesus there is, is talking about the importance of keeping your eyes fixed on him. 
this day of his return, this day of the Lord, day of judgment, keeping yourself focused on the Lord rather than turning back. And Jesus uses Lot's wife in that passage as an illustration of somebody turning their heart back. So even Jesus interprets it through this lens. There was something more going on, something more than just mere hesitation. So what, what was Lot's wife looking at? Did she suddenly realize she'd left the oven on back home and wanted to go back to double check? I'm sure we've all had those moments. Was it a sudden awareness that she forgot to grab the old family photo albums or her grandmother's antique china that she'd been given as a wedding gift? Was she trying to catch a final glimpse at her chic apartment with the rooftop pool and the views of the city skyline? Was she feeling some sorrow maybe over the loss of her, her friends from the Saturday morning ladies book club? See, those may be the surface idols, but there's more going on than just her home, her friends, her possessions. The deep idol was the comfort, the security of her life in Sodom. I mean, think about it. Sodom was a cesspool, a moral cesspool, but it was a comfortable cesspool, right? It was a stable, secure cesspool. Sodom's sin was extreme, but it was familiar sin. It was comfortable sin. This was the deep idol. Her eyes were not fixed on the Savior who had graciously offered her a chance to escape the impending judgment. Her home, her former life among a wicked people had so permeated her soul that she could not peel her heart away from the utter corruption she'd left behind. She was looking back at what she thought would bring her ultimate security, ultimate comfort. She didn't fundamentally believe that God had her best interests in mind as he led her up the mountain, as he led her out of that disaster below. In fact, Lot's wife seems to have cherished the values of Sodom and, and so joined them in their demise. She hesitated. She held back. In essence, she had crafted an idol in the idol factory of her heart, to borrow a term from, from John Calvin. The heart is an idol factory. She looked back because that's where her heart was leading her. Her inner being was fixed on earthly things. So the idol of comfort and security probably tempts us all in different ways. We long for what lies behind, and this competes with what lies ahead. The problem is that there's not enough room in our hearts, in our souls, for idolatry and true faith. Spiritual multitasking doesn't work. I don't care who you are, I don't care how good you think you are at multitasking, it never really succeeds. I can tell you right now that I cannot focus on writing a sermon or on some intellectual project and yet focus on my wife or my kids at the same time, it just doesn't work. I can tell you right now that I cannot complain and, and gossip and expel unwholesome locutions from my mouth and at the same time praise my God and Father for his love and his mercy and his goodness. It just doesn't work. Spiritual multitasking is a lie that's detrimental to our souls. Our hearts cannot be fixed on the things above, fixed on Christ, and yet fixed on the world as well. 
Idolatry and true worship are incompatible. Fear and faith are incompatible. They're about as compatible as, as oil and water, snake oil and holy water. Fear is what makes our steps of faith so heavy. It's, it's, it's the opposite of faith. See, Lot's wife didn't trust the path ahead or the one who was leading her to safety. I think we can all relate to this. We've all asked ourselves, who is this God who's calling me to flee from my life, flee to the mountains, give up my life, blindly follow him? What if it doesn't work out? What if following Jesus doesn't work out? What if, what if he leads me to, uh, on some sort of dead end, down a rabbit trail? What if he doesn't have my best interests in mind? What if he asks me to do something I find uncomfortable? Who is this God who dares call me away from my comfort? So I can picture myself standing on the side of that mountain, tempted to look back, tempted to peer down through the trees toward the life I left behind, tempted to try to catch one last glimpse of that idol, of that sin that I swore off so many times. Just one more peek, one more look, one more flirtation with sin. See, I can't plead ignorance as to what the idols are in my own life. I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we, we have a pretty good sense of what's wrong with us, right? Between the Holy Spirit and my wife, I have a pretty good sense of where my sin is. I think we can all relate. I know what my idols are. Structure, security, stability, order, efficiency. Those are the things that drive me. God also knows what those idols are, and he knows how to uproot them. So when God called me to the chaos of the mission field, when he called me to the chaos of ministry, when he called me to the chaos of parenthood, when he called me to the chaos of walking with my wife through her illness, the chaos of getting my hands dirty with the pain and the needs of others, I think God's trying to teach me something. God has his ways of identifying and helping us identify the idols in our hearts. Fear drives us back to those idols. So what do we fear? Well, we fear the unknown. We fear the loss of comfort. We fear that which is difficult. We fear suffering. We fear the loss of our, our status and our reputation and our employment. We fear the loss of things that we use to define ourselves. In other words, we, we fear faith. We fear faith because faith requires us to put our trust in unseen realities. Faith requires us to embrace the unknown with confidence in the one who does know. Notice in the passage that Lot and his wife seem to have wanted the easy path. Notice how even as they're fleeing, Lot is pleading, oh, don't make me flee to the mountains. I, I, the disaster will overtake me. He hesitates continually. But yet God called him to the mountains, farther up, farther in, to borrow from C.S. Lewis. So you live in Colorado. We understand how mountains work, right? Maybe you've climbed a few mountains. You've certainly driven up a few hills in your lifetime. We know the feeling of forces like gravity working against us, pulling us back. We know the feeling of forces like fatigue or lack of oxygen hindering our steps. I've climbed a few 14ers over the years and I'll tell you, it doesn't get any easier. My knees hurt every 
time. My head pounds every time. No matter how much ibuprofen and water I pound, the head is still, still going, it still hurts. My feet ache every time. And yet I drag myself back up there again. I don't know why. Maybe the feeling of conquering something. Maybe standing on top of the world, it's, it's a good feeling, whatever it is. But in a similar way, the climb out of our former way of life is not easy. Trusting that God knows us better than we know ourselves, that's not easy. Taking up our cross and following Jesus Christ is not easy. Fixing our minds on things above is not easy. Staring into the face of glory is not easy. It hurts. It exposes our sin. But the easy path is the coward's path. Following our natural impulses really doesn't take any effort. Sin does not require any cultivation, right? It doesn't require any self-discipline. The pursuit of sin is a very easy, gentle decline to hell. But praise be to God that according to the riches of his glorious grace, he has redeemed us from sin by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross and has empowered us through his Holy Spirit to tear down the idols and to desecrate the altars of our sins. So I want to encourage you today to ask God to show you what it is that's hindering your steps. What is it that's keeping you from moving further up, further into his presence? And as we go to our time of communion this morning, this is an opportunity to reflect, to truly reflect on where we are. What are those idols in our hearts? What are those places of comfort and security that keep drawing us back, that make our steps heavy? This is a time to repent. So I want to urge you, if you have not yet picked up the communion elements, we have some trays here in the front or the back. As we take communion as, as a church, this is our opportunity to publicly profess our faith in Jesus Christ, to publicly repent of the idols in our hearts. When you take communion, you are truly encouraging your brothers and sisters in Christ, those seated around you as we worship our, our Lord together. So let's just pause for a moment and, and reflect. What is God teaching you? What is God calling you to repent of in your own life? God, we ask that you would expose in our hearts those things that are keeping us from you, keeping us from trusting you, keeping us from walking with you in faith. Lord God, we all have areas of sin, areas of idolatry in our hearts. And we confess those things to you now, Lord. We ask that you in your mercy, in your love, that you would restore us, that you would strengthen us, that through this time of communion, you would nurture our faith, that you would nourish us. 
on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it after giving thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me.